to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. There are a lot of stories to cover this week, and I'll try to get to as many of them as I possibly can. But before I do, I want to take a moment to talk about a man who has who has pioneered the conservative message on what has become known as talk radio. Of course, I'm talking about Rush Limbaugh, who passed away on Wednesday after a year-long battle with lung cancer. He fought this battle with enormous courage and continued to do his show as often as possible right up to the end. Fifteen and a half million daily listeners will miss him greatly. Because Rush Limbaugh was an original. There was nobody like him. He was larger than life, a man who spoke his mind, even when he was swimming upstream against the popular leftist media, which was most of the time, taking conservative positions that were unpopular with the left, but speaking his mind anyway and getting heard by millions of people who agreed with him. His voice became the voice of the conservative movement in America. And he became one of the most successful talk radio hosts in the history of radio. In a world where instant messaging and video streaming command the airwaves, Rush was still the must-listen-to guy on talk radio for three hours every afternoon, five days a week. American Radio legend Rush Limbaugh, 70, died in his home in Palm Beach, Florida. The announcement of his death was made by his wife, Catherine. She said, quote, I know that I am most certainly not the Limbaugh that you tuned in to listen to today. It is with profound sadness I must share with you directly that our beloved Rush, my wonderful husband, passed away this morning due to complications from lung cancer. As so many of you know, losing a loved one is terribly difficult, even more so when that loved one is larger than life. Rush will forever be the greatest of all time." Limbaugh broke the news himself of his cancer diagnosis on his radio show on February 3rd. He said, I can't help but feel that I'm letting everybody down with this, but the upshot is that I have been diagnosed with advanced lung cancer." I was listening at the time I was driving, and I remember the shock that I felt at that moment. Rush was as humble as a person could be, and he apologized for sharing this bad news, imagine. But that was Rush because as brash and uncensored as he was when he talked about the issues, he had at the same time a sense of humility that he shared with his listeners. Donald Trump was among the first to offer his expression of sorrow at Limbaugh's passing. He said this, The great Rush Limbaugh has passed away to a better place, free from physical pain and hostility. His honor, courage, strength, and loyalty will never be replaced. Rush was a patriot, a defender of liberty. 
and someone who gave us all the courage to speak truth to power and calling out the fraud and corruption wherever he saw it. Unquote. Rush was regularly criticized harshly for his controversial comments, and he was frequently accused of sexism and racism for his uncensored remarks. But he said, I'm none of those things. I'm simply someone who views events in life and comments on them. I have my own version of what's right and wrong. In an interview with NPR, he once said, quote, there's a whole psychology of doing the program the way I do it. And there's a lot of shtick and a lot of humor to it. But the one thing I don't do is make things up or say things I don't believe just to cause a reaction. I have the freedom to be entirely honest about my passions, unquote. One day after he had announced his diagnosis, the President of the United States, Donald Trump, as part of his State of the Union speech, awarded Rush the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the country's highest civilian honor. Trump thanked Limbaugh for his, quote, decades of tireless devotion, unquote. So after a long and painful struggle, Rush Limbaugh passed away on Wednesday, February 17th, 2021. From conservatives around the country, there were expressions of sorrow and shock, and there were reminiscences of what Rush Limbaugh had meant to them. The left, they weren't so generous, even in the hours immediately following the announcement. And their hostility can best be seen in the latest nasty expressions of their own intolerance, like this one, now trending on social media, which is simply hashtag good riddance. And the headline in the Huffington Post that demonstrated their editorial inability to rise above the hate and bullying on the day of his death. Their headline read, Rush Limbaugh, bigoted king of talk radio, dies at 70. You know, the Biden message to America is supposed to be unification. But you can hardly see that in these expressions of disdain and disgust. As far as I'm concerned, the bullying and the hostility expressed by the left has very little to do with Rush Limbaugh, who will be remembered by those who respected him and loved him as a man of courage, who refused to stand down no matter how crude or cruel the criticism was that came from the left. He said his piece, and he stood up for what he believed, and I, for one, along with millions of other Americans who still love this country and everything it stands for, I will miss him. As President Trump said, the great Rush Limbaugh has passed away to a better place, free from physical pain and hostility. We wish him thanks and God's speed. Rest in peace, Rush. Well, the next big news story this week is already old news, and the world has already moved on. This was, of course, the exoneration, the complete acquittal of Donald Trump at his second impeachment trial. 
But even though it's old news, it's worth a few words, and it's part of a much bigger story. It was a farce from beginning to end, just like the first one. The Democrats should be ashamed, but of course they aren't. They are so consumed by their hatred for Trump that nothing is off their program if it has the potential to destroy him. Just as they did in the first round of impeachment, they manipulated what they called evidence, including the timeline that proved that Trump could not possibly have incited the violence at the Capitol on January 6th, and they presented doctored evidence and emotional arguments that would never have stood up in a real court of law. And when their so-called evidence didn't match the facts, they made up new evidence going back in time and lifting out-of-context quotes like, we'll fight like hell, and they made it sound like he was encouraging what they called insurrection. What candidate from public office does not say, we'll fight like hell? The impeachment trial was political theater of the absurd from beginning to end. And it humiliated this country that our government would act so shamelessly in front of the whole world. And worse, they were even willing to stall desperately needed stimulus funding for families who were hurting so badly because of the pandemic. All the Democrats were interested in doing was to impeach this man who was no longer even in office. This would be funny if it weren't so sick and if it weren't such a dangerous precedent for America. Now, though, ironically, since the Democrats were ready to impeach a former president who had already left office, there's now talk about the precedent having been set so that there is now the possibility of impeaching Hillary Clinton, for example, for her malfeasance while she was Secretary of State. Now, wouldn't that be interesting? The Democrats have gone overboard to try and entrap Trump, and when he didn't overstep, they embellished his actions to appear as though he had. That's what they did with the phone call that he had made to the new president of Ukraine that led to Trump's first impeachment trial. They embellished the phone conversation they even made up a totally false transcript of the phone call and read it into the record. And they made up crimes and ordered huge investigations that cost tens of millions of taxpayer dollars and that went absolutely nowhere. So when do these kind of shenanigans stop being political theater and actually become recognized as the unlawful exercises of power that they really are? And when are the perpetrators of these conspiracies against a sitting president become legally actionable? When is enough enough? Now, more recently, Speaker Nancy Pelosi has anointed herself Queen of Washington. The Capitol building is surrounded by seven-foot chain-link fencing topped with razor wire. Nancy Pelosi feels safer now, although she has been warning everybody who will listen about how the enemy is within, unquote. So I'm not really sure if the enemy is within, how this fencing is going to protect her 
from the enemy without. I don't get it. Or maybe she's just creating a distraction so that no one will ask, why wasn't the Capitol sufficiently protected on January 6th, despite the fact that there were warnings before that day? This last week, 42 Republican representatives wrote a letter to Pelosi demanding the removal of this fence from around the people's house. North Carolina Representative Ted Budd, who organized and authored the letter, wrote, quote, The U.S. Capitol is a symbol of freedom, both at home and abroad. It is a place where Americans from all walks of life can visit, learn about, and witness U.S. history. Sadly, because of the fortress-like security in place, this is no longer the case. It's time to open the people's house, unquote. The fence is so egregious that even Muriel Bowser, who is Washington's Democrat mayor, even she has come out against it becoming permanent in Washington. She said, we will not accept extra troops or permanent fencing as a long-term fixture in D.C. And this may be the only time in her lifetime or mine that I agree with her. You know, when I was a little girl, my parents took me and my brother and my sister to Washington on a family trip. They took us down in springtime when the cherry blossoms were in bloom. I remember that. It was my first exposure to the capital of my country, and I still remember our visit to the Treasury and the Library of Congress and even the White House, and yes, to the Capitol. I was so awed and so proud that this was my capital. It was so beautiful. I have visited the Capitol building many times since then as an adult, attending meetings when I was myself a candidate for Congress, and later to attend meetings related to my work in intelligence. I was always impressed at how open the buildings of our government were to the American people. And that one particular building where the people's business was attended to, the Capitol building, was one of the most impressive of all. Of course, after 9-11, some security protocols were put into place and they made entrance into all government buildings a little more cumbersome. Of course, they were considered to be necessary in that new era of Islamic terror. But in spite of that, the buildings were still open to the American people. And the American people came in large numbers. But now, what Pelosi and her colleagues have done is to close off the people's house from the people. They have created an armed camp in the people's city. Thousands of National Guard soldiers armed as though Washington, D.C. were a war zone. And according to federal law enforcement officials, they're not currently tracking any specific and credible threats in the Capitol. So why do they have so many thousands of armed soldiers there? Nancy Pelosi is following the teachings, if you want to call them that, of Rahm Emanuel, who once said, never let a serious crisis go to waste. He was actually borrowing that from the lessons found in Saul Alinsky's pamphlet, Rules for Radicals. And isn't that interesting? 
because when we hear about the programs that the Biden administration wants to put in place, they echo Alinsky's anarchist teachings. Biden's policies echo another of Alinsky's writings, How to Create a Social State. It listed the eight rules that Alinsky said were required to establish a socialist country. Its words sounded eerily, even terrifyingly familiar, and Americans who love this country should not only take note, they should take it seriously, because Obama was a disciple of Alinsky's philosophy, and Biden is carrying out Obama's program. Now, right after the break, I will tell you what these eight rules to a socialist state are, according to Alinsky. So stick around, because I'll be right back. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is the Friedman Report. Oh, my fellow Americans, we sure do love our convenient shopping options. But what happens after we buy? Are the products coming from China or overseas, thereby putting our fellow Americans out of business? Are the profits being sent to groups like Antifa, Black Lives Matter, groups that intend to destroy the freedoms that we enjoy? Well, listen, I'm an avid consumer just like you are, but I've realized that we need to think before we buy. Shopping should be convenient and easy, sure, but we need to be able to follow the money. Well, shoptotheright.com. It's brand new. It's a new shopping platform featuring American companies with a focus on products that are made right here in America. Well, listen, this is a novel idea and one that I believe will start to become more popular and create a shopping revolution. Shoptotheright.com. Now, before the break, I was telling you about how Saul Alinsky figures into the picture of America that the Biden administration is now trying to paint. According to Alinsky, if you want to create a socialist state, there are eight levels of control that you have to obtain first. And the most important of these is the very first one on the list. See if it doesn't sound familiar. Number one, health care. Control health care and you control the people. Does that ring a bell? Remember how insistent Obama was that Obamacare had to be passed? And Nancy Pelosi even told everyone that if you want to know what's in the bill, we have to pass it so you can find out. That's how serious it was. They were keeping all of the details from us. All they would tell us was that if you like your doctor, you can keep him. And if you like your health care plan, you can keep it. Only it was all lies. And that was the beginning of something much, much bigger. Obama was a disciple of Alinsky. So was that what Obama was trying to do when he was president? And is that what Biden Harris are trying to do now? Well, hang on, because that's only the first step. There's more, and it gets worse, much worse. Number two, poverty. Increase the poverty level as high as possible. Poor people are easier to control, 
and will not fight back if you are providing everything for them to live. Well, the easiest way to do this, of course, is what Obama did and Biden-Harris intend to do. Raise taxes, increase unemployment, create poverty where none existed before. Without jobs, such as the 11,000 Keystone XL pipeline jobs and the 5,000 construction jobs on the southern border fence, both of which Biden eliminated in his first executive orders, people will not be able to support their families. They'll go on welfare. A Democrat invention, by the way, which was designed to make people dependent upon the government. You know, it is interesting to observe that under Obama's policy, a record 47 million Americans were on food stamps. That's about 13 million more than when he took office in 2009. And under Obama-Biden, the poverty rate stayed at 15% for three consecutive years, the first time that has happened since the mid-1960s. It was 12.5% in 2007, and under Obama-Biden, about 50 million Americans lived below the poverty line, which at that time was defined as the, an annual income of about $23,500 a year for a family of four. Wow. Now, if Biden-Harris carry on with the same policies as the Obama administration, we can expect the same results. And all the record-breaking results of Donald Trump's programs, unemployment levels at their lowest in decades and employment levels at their highest, particularly for minorities. How about the resurgence of manufacturing that Obama said couldn't be done? And even the response to the China virus, developing effective vaccines that are saving lives every day. And they did it in months instead of years. And yet, Biden has already canceled many of Trump's innovations during his first days in office and reverted back to the old Obama ideas that didn't work then and aren't going to work now. Remember that old saying, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results? And you know, Americans, we will be the ones to pay for the drastic actions of this new administration. So let's go back to Alinsky's list of eight levels of control. Number three, debt. Increase the debt to an unsustainable level. That way you are able to increase taxes and this will produce more poverty. Okay, so Biden promised to increase taxes for the rich, he said, but he also promised to cancel the Trump tax reform that had boosted the average income by anywhere from $2,000 to $6,000. Now, if he cancels that, he will force a tax increase on the middle class by virtue of the fact that they will no longer have that tax break. And what will happen to the income of the average American? It will go down. I don't think it's that Biden can't do arithmetic. He just thinks that we can't. Okay, number four. Number four is gun control. Alinsky said, 
remove the ability to defend themselves from the government. That way, you are able to create a police state. Whoa. White House spokeswoman Jen Psaki said that gun control is a priority to the president on a personal level. Although the White House has not yet proposed any kind of legislative package on gun control, and there is no timeline, at least not one that we know about, for such legislation passing, Biden said just this week that he will not wait for another mass shooting to take action on gun control. This one is a wait-and-see operation, but when it does come, it's going to create a massive response. And here's why. In a 2018 small arms survey, it was estimated that American civilians own 393 million guns, both legally and otherwise. That is considerably more than the population of this country, which is estimated at 330 million people, although if Biden has anything to do with it, that number is going to grow wildly every day from now on. But the truth is that nobody really knows how many guns are owned by Americans, legally or illegally, because no real survey has ever been carried out according to reliable standards. But what is clear is that American gun owners are not going to be willing to give up their guns, which were guaranteed them by the Constitution, so that they could protect themselves from a tyrannical government. Now, five, welfare. Take control of every aspect of their lives, food, housing, and income. Well, that's a no-brainer. Welfare wasn't designed to help the poor escape poverty, but to keep them immersed in it. Subsidies for unwed mothers who don't finish school and get paid to have babies and stayed home to take care of them. Under Obama, the number of EBT card users, that's what we used to call food stamps, that number grew from 28 million people under Obama to nearly 50 million people in less than five years. That's almost double. And the stories were rampant about how Obama agents were pressuring people to subscribe to EBT, even when they didn't want to. After Trump became president, by 2019, 6 million people had dropped off food stamps. They had jobs. They no longer needed them. Number six, education. Take control of what people read and listen to. Take control of what children learn in school. I recently read a story written by a librarian who was ordered to throw out the classics of authors like Shakespeare, Dickens, Dostoevsky, and so many more. She wrote this. We were taught in library school that it was bad to have a collection older than X years. It depended on the subject. So we threw out the old books and replaced them with teen angst, near porn, cataclysmic nuclear war, and now drag queens reading LGBTQQRSTUV literature at their story time. I apologize to you and all bibliophiles. 
We didn't burn them. We just threw them away because the standards told us to, unquote. This was recounted in an article by the writer and former teacher Jeff Minnick, who went to the library in search of some old classics, but he reported that he couldn't find a single one, not one classic on the shelves. That was shocking and a rude awakening about what modern education is doing to our children, depriving them of their history, their heritage, and the font of knowledge that enriches life and teaches us more about it than we can ever learn on our own. That's the knowledge that we learn from books, from classics, from Charles Dickens, from Homer, from Dostoevsky, and so many more. Minnick wrote about one Massachusetts teacher who bragged about emptying the shelves of classic, and she tweeted, very proud to say we got the Odyssey removed from the curriculum this year, unquote. Proud, really? You should be ashamed. And here's another story on the same subject. Woke teachers want Shakespeare cut from the curriculum because he is seen as a tool of imperial oppression, an author who should be discredited and banished from the curriculum entirely. The teachers who founded hashtag disrupt texts said, quote, this is about white supremacy and colonization, unquote. They want the traditional works of Western literature either removed from the curriculum entirely or subjected to searing criticism. They talk about Shakespeare's problematic worldview. They say, readers of Shakespeare should be required to address the whiteness of their thinking. This is all about wokeness, my friends, and the teachers who support it want to replace the classics with teenage books about race and lesbian stories and so forth. And underneath all of this radical left-wing agenda that the teachers are promoting is the deeply held belief that this is all about white supremacy. And on college campuses all around the country, this is becoming the norm. This isn't education anymore. My friends, this is child abuse. This is the theft from our children, whom we are sending to college at enormous expense. This is depriving them of the education that they're entitled to, that they deserve, that they need in order to be fulfilled in their lives after college. I'm shocked and dismayed and very worried at what will become of this country in the hands of our future leaders who are now part of the woke generation. Okay, getting back to Alinsky. Number seven, religion. Remove the belief in God from the government and schools. Well, we started that a long time ago, on June 25th, 1962, in fact, in Ingle versus Vitale, when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the government cannot sponsor a prayer and require school children to say it. They referenced the Establishment Clause in the Constitution, the First Amendment. 
It says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. This clause prevents the government from establishing an official religion. Okay, I get that. But establishing an official religion is not the same as prayer in school, particularly if it is voluntary and private. Today in America, students can actually be punished for simply praying silently or bringing a Bible to school. How far down that path have we already come? And number eight, the last one, is class warfare. Alinsky says, divide the people into the wealthy and the poor. This will cause more discontent, and it will be easier to take from, by which they mean tax, the wealthy with the support of the poor. Does any of this sound like what is happening to America right now? Joseph Stalin described his converts to communism as useful idiots. Those same useful idiots have left a path of destruction in every country where they have taken control and imposed socialism. Does this sound familiar? Isn't this exactly what's happening in America today? So here's why I bring all this up. Our country is changing right under our noses, and it's not just by chance. These changes are based on a formula laid down by Saul Alinsky and appropriated by Barack Obama and the people in his administration, including Joe Biden. And it's people like Barack Obama and Eric Holder and Hillary Clinton and newcomers like Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and even AOC who are planning to be the elite in this not-so-brave new world. And it's people like us whom they will impoverish and rule while they enjoy the spoils of their battle for socialism. It's interesting also that many, if not most, of the people who are fighting this battle against us, against we the people, and at our expense, are wealthy and intend to stay wealthy and be part of the elite while we become part of the proletariat and become their subjects and do what they want. That's what the Green New Deal is all about. They're going to spend our tax dollars on retrofitting cities, whole cities, forcing us to retrofit our houses, our homes to be more green, and forcing us to live under their Green New Deal, their new green laws, which they may or may not follow themselves. We already see how some of the elite tell us to watch our carbon footprint, but fly their private jets all around the world. My friends, America as we have known it, as the founders designed it, as they dreamed of a new future based on individual liberty and responsibility. If things continue to go the way they are going now, if Americans do not object, if we go along like sheep to the slaughter, America, as we know it, as we have grown in it, as we have come to love it, it will all 
be gone. Now, it's time for another break, but stay put. I'll be right back with more stories of the week. My fellow Americans, our mission here at AmericaOutloud.com is clear. We're here to defend our founding values and principles at a moment when they are under unprecedented assault. And to cover the news objectively and offer intelligent commentary on the challenges we face as a nation. You can tune in and join our family of listeners 24-7 in this vital crusade. Our apps are on Apple, Android, or Alexa. Find us on iHeartRadio or our world-class media player. It is a fight for the soul of humanity. America Out Loud Talk Radio is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multi-nutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. We've been talking about some of the things that have been going wrong, a lot of things that have been going wrong. It's a long and complicated story and it won't be told in one sitting. So I'm not going to try. And anyway, it's time for something a little bit more uplifting, at least something that shows that fighting back is still an option. Here's the story. The tide has turned for two Democrat governors of two very blue states. In California, the state's governor, Gavin Newsom, is now the subject of a recall petition. The petitioners have already collected one and a half million signatures on petitions. That's the way you get something on the ballot. You go out and you get signatures. And I can tell you from having run for political office, it's a tedious job, but you also get to meet a lot of really nice people. So there is a payoff. And the other payoff, of course, is that you get to have your name on the ballot or your petition on the ballot. So Here's what's going on in California. They needed a one and a half million signatures and they needed to get it by March 17th in order to force a recall vote. That's what they're trying to do. They want their governor, Gavin Newsom, to be recalled and out of office. They think he's doing a terrible job. And so they have started this petition and they got what was needed, 1.5 million signatures. However, 
There is a process that follows getting all these signatures, and that is that members of the Secretary of State's office examine every single signature, and they eliminate the ones that they consider to be invalid. Either they weren't signed in pen, or the signature doesn't match the signature that they signed when they registered to vote, or they put the wrong address, and so forth. In any case, if it's invalid, then the signature doesn't count, and it's eliminated from that number of signatures that they have collected. Now, in California, right now, the Secretary of State's office has said that the rate of failed signatures, invalid signatures, is about 16%, which means that in order to get the approved number given a 16% uh, elimination of signatures, they have to get 1.8 million signatures. And so they still have a lot of work cut out for them for the next four weeks. So we'll see what happens with that. But why are they even doing this petition in the first place? Well, for pretty good reasons. And we've been talking about it for uh, quite a few weeks now. Governor Newsom has been doing a lousy job in California. His policies are ruining the state with ever-increasing taxes, extravagant welfare, water, power, and transportation infrastructure that's virtually falling apart, Forest maintenance that is so poor that raging wildfires have been destroying millions of acres and costing unspeakable loss of life every year. Immigration policies that put legal residents at risk and add to their tax burden by subsidizing illegal residents with taxpayer money. And then there's an explosion of homeless population who have invaded city streets and private properties alike all over California, and so much more. These were Governor Newsom's policies, or lack thereof. Newsom supervised nearly a year of some of the strictest pandemic restrictions in the country. He only lifted the state's stay-at-home order a few weeks ago. They have been under restrictions, stay-at-home orders, for over a year. It's crazy. And in the middle of all this, another scandal is losing because California faces massive claims that as much as $31 billion in fraudulent unemployment benefits may have been paid to fraudsters and foreign criminal rings. Honestly, the effort to recall Newsom is absolutely in order but it's far from over because now they have to go through this whole signature process to the end to make sure that they have at least 1.8 million signatures to cancel out that 16% invalid rate. That's a big deal, and they only have four weeks to do it in, so I wish them great success. Newsom has been a jerk from the beginning, and he has helped to destroy his beautiful state by neglect. And he's hurt the people who elected him through horrible policies that allowed dangerous criminals to roam free. The infrastructure 
to deteriorate, and much, much more. Recalling Newsom would be a blessing for Californians. But then, of course, who would replace him? And would that person be any better? And then there's New York's Governor Cuomo. He was New York's fair-haired boy. He won the Emmy for his COVID coverage in his daily press conferences. Remember those? But today, he is suddenly facing an onslaught of rage from just about everybody for his handling of the pandemic in New York State and his responsibility for the death of thousands of seniors. And that's a story that I've told before, and I'm going to tell it again, at least part of it. Under his tenure, as many as 15,000 residents of New York nursing and rehabilitation facilities died of COVID-19 because of an executive order that he wrote and signed on March 25th, in which he ordered patients who had been sent to hospitals with COVID-19 back into nursing homes, whether or not they were COVID positive. This is what the order said, quote, no resident shall be denied readmission or admission to the nursing home solely based on a confirmed or suspected diagnosis of COVID-19. Nursing homes are prohibited from requiring a hospitalized resident who is determined medically stable to be tested for COVID-19 prior to admission or readmission, unquote. In other words, a patient coming back from the hospital to a nursing home, it was forbidden to test them for COVID-19 prior to admitting them to the nursing home. Now, remember that Donald Trump, President Trump, had ordered a 1,000-bed hospital ship into New York Harbor to take care of COVID patients and also retrofitted the Javits Con Convention Center in downtown New York with another more than 2,000 beds. And yet Cuomo would not allow these patients to go there instead of back into the nursing homes. And as a result, it is now estimated that as many as 15,000 seniors and rehabilitating patients died of COVID because of this, because of this executive order. It was a death sentence for these patients. And Cuomo should have known it. I have been reporting on this since last March. You have known it. If you've been listening to my show, you knew about it last March. And I was furious. I was so angry because it was so obvious to me. And yet he went on. And as a matter of fact, at one press conference, he was asked about it. He was asked, he was asked by a journalist about the executive order that he wrote that ordered these people who came from hospitals to go back into the nursing home without being tested. And he looked puzzled and he turned to an aide and said, I don't know about this. Do you know anything about this? It was shocking, appalling. 
the man is arrogant and he is absolutely unconcerned about the effect, the life and death effect of his executive order. And then Cuomo refused to put out an accurate figure of how many people actually died. So New York Assemblyman Ron Kim, who questioned Cuomo's numbers, now has come out and said in public that the governor had called him at his home and threatened to destroy him just for asking the question. Now, this is not just about Republican legislators criticizing Cuomo for his malfeasance. Democrat leaders of the New York State Senate, Democrats, have begun to move to strip Cuomo of his emergency powers related to COVID-19 because of his handling of the pandemic and because it has been revealed that the governor's team hid health data on seniors because they were afraid it could spark a federal investigation. Cuomo later denied that his administration hid any data, but now the truth is coming out, and the investigation has apparently begun. Stripping Cuomo of his emergency powers would be a staggering blow to the governor and his arrogance, because it would be done by members of his own party, and it may come as soon as next week. And there's more. It has now been reported that Cuomo is under investigation by the United States Attorney for the Eastern District of New York, that's a federal office, as well as the FBI, because of his administration's decision to send recovering coronavirus patients into nursing homes and other long-term care facilities. Well, good for them, and about time, too. Now, I want to get back to something we talked about earlier, the woke generation and what they're doing to literature in our children's education. But they're doing more. The woke generation is destroying history with a vengeance, and they don't want anything or anyone to stand in their way. As I've said before, what they are doing to our children is child abuse, because they are stealing their history from them with the arrogance that they have created from their own self-serving mission. Listen, my friends, history is not negotiable. It happened. We may look at past events differently. We may interpret them differently. And we may not like what we see. But we can't change the facts. As the man said, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. Things happened. Some of them were ugly and brutal, and we'd like to forget them, but we shouldn't. Some were uplifting and beautiful, and most were something in between. But with all that happened, the good and the bad, if we were smart, we learned from them. They made us smarter. They made us better. Hopefully they made our lives better if the lessons that we learned were put to good use. The 1619 Project wants us to believe that this country began when the first slaves 
landed in Virginia in the year 1619. They want to impose a view of American history that is wrapped around the brutality of slavery and that makes that part of American culture that accepted slavery and after slavery was abolished, Jim Crow and segregation, they want to make that the foundation for everything else that happened in America since 1619. But that is a reinvention of American history, and it's wrong. In 21st century eyes, there is no excuse for the inhumanity that allowed slavery to exist. The idea that one person could own another person is abhorrent and totally unacceptable. But there were many Americans, white Americans, who fought slavery tooth and nail, and some even gave their lives to end this barbarous practice. But 1619 is a myopic view of slavery and history. Where is the outcry today by the sponsors of Black Lives Matter and the 1619 Project and others who are supporting this rewriting of history? Where is the outcry and the rage against the slavery of today? Slavery that still exists in Africa and the Middle East and China, for heaven's sake. The slavery there is so horrendous. And in so many other places, even in America, there is still human trafficking and slavery in America today. The Global Slavery Index reported that as recently as 2016, there were 40.3 million people living in slavery in 167 countries around the world. 73% of them were women and 25% of them children. Those countries where slavery still exists include China, as we know. We've talked about it before on this program, and we'll talk about it again. In Saudi Arabia, in North Korea, Indonesia, Turkey, and even here in the United States, where, as I said, the trafficking in human beings is still a problem of significant proportions. So where is the outcry from those who want to rewrite the history of America? They want it to be about slavery. They are angry about slavery that ended more than 140 years ago. But where is their outrage about slavery, horrible slavery, that is going on around the world and in this country right now? Now, here's one more short, short story. And it's interesting. Is Kamala ready to start taking over for Biden? That didn't take long. It's been less than a month since Joe Biden was inaugurated, and Kamala is already taking over some of his designated and time-honored duties, including, and this is big, making telephone calls to heads of state of several of our allies. That's a task that's always done by the president. Is this a sign that the shift of power is already taking place? Is Joe Biden moving over to make room for Kamala to start taking his place? We'll have to wait and see, but you have to admit it's intriguing and very, very dangerous for America. Well, our hour is over. Well, the clock is running out and our hour is just about over. Thank you for sharing it with me. I'll be back next Thursday, same time, with more stories of the week. 
You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been the Friedman Report.